So let's get started. Uh, Mormonism. Uh, they don't like to be called Mormons these days. They prefer to be called uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints or the LDS Church. And I'm sure all of you have had some kind of interaction with a Mormon. If not a family member, maybe one of those guys. And yes, they do have female missionaries. We'll talk about them later. But they have groups of female missionaries that will come out, and they go two by two just like the males. Where did this all get started? It got started with Joseph Smith. He was born in Sharon, Vermont, to Joseph and Lucy Smith. He was the third oldest of nine kids, and he was raised mostly in Vermont. But when he was 10, his father decided to move to New York, and they moved to New York. They moved to New York because his father wasn't having a lot of luck in farming in Vermont. And so he decided, if I pack up and we move to New York, we might do better in farming in New York. And they get there, and they're a Methodist family, and his parents convert to the Presbyterian Church, or at least some of his family converts to the Presbyterian Church. Uh, Joseph Smith writes about this. This is in the book, The Pearl of Great Price. He says, I was at this time in my 15th year. My father's family was proselytized to the Presbyterian faith, and four of them joined that church, namely my mother, Lucy, my brothers, Hiram, and Samuel Harrison, and my sister, Sophronia. Four of his family members converted to Presbyterianism, but Joseph couldn't make up his mind, because a lot of the denominations were fighting back and forth with each other, and he couldn't figure out which one was correct. He said this, My mind was greatly excited. The Presbyterians were most decided against the Baptists and the Methodists, and used all the powers of both reason and sophistry to prove their errors, or at least to make the people think they were in error. And so he watched all the denominations fight back and forth with each other, and he just sat back and said, well, which one am I supposed to pick? How do I know which one is correct? Joseph Smith again. In the midst of this war of words and tumult of opinions, I often said to myself, what is to be done? Who of all these parties are right? Or are they all wrong together? If any one of them be right, which is it? And how shall I know? And Joseph Smith found his answer while reading the Bible. He didn't find his answer in the Bible. He found it while reading the Bible. It's an important distinction. He said, I was one day reading the epistle of James, chapter 15, verse, fifth verse, which reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given to him. And he goes on to explain how this impacted him, and it was really meaningful to him, and he then lost his confidence in the Bible and said the Bible can't answer our questions. It can't resolve problems. That if we really want to know how to resolve things, you just need to go and pray about it. There's no point in arguing over the meaning of various passages. And you, none of them are going to agree with each other. Here's what he said. At length, I came to the conclusion that I must either remain in darkness and confusion or else I must do as James directs, that is, ask of God. I at length came to the determination to ask of God, concluding that if he gave wisdom to them that lack wisdom, he would give liberally and not upbraid, I might venture. So he decided that he was going to go out into the woods and seek God in prayer and get an answer to which of the denominations was correct. Which one should he choose? This is called the first vision. In accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. 
It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day, early in the spring of 1820. And he goes out, and he's out in the woods by himself, praying. And he says that immediately when he started praying, he was overcome by some mysterious power. Immediately, I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me, and he had and had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. And he says he was held by this force for several minutes where he couldn't even speak, and he thought he was going to die. And then there was this great pillar of light, as he described it, that descended upon him, and he described it as being above the brightness of the sun. This bright light shows up. And in this bright light, there are two figures, two personages, as he describes them. Here's what he said. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. Smith says he spoke to these two personages, and one turns to the other and says, This is my beloved son, hear him. This is God the Father speaking to Jesus. Apparently, Joseph Smith thought he had a visit from God himself. And he only had one question. Which sect of Christianity should I go to? I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all the creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt. 2,000 years of church history, Joseph Smith is the guy that's going to fix all of it. God came to him to let him know everybody else was wrong. Joseph Smith would later recount this story to a Methodist preacher, one of his pastors at the time, and he was a little surprised by the pastor's response. I was greatly surprised at his behavior. He treated my communication not lightly, but with great contempt, saying it was all of the devil. And there were no such things as visions or revelations in these days, that all such things had ceased with the apostles, and that there would never be any more of them. Now, if you found a Methodist preacher today and told him the same story, you would not get that answer. But that was the historic position of the church, was revelations have ceased. And he, Joseph Smith found every Christian he went to and told this story to, he got the same response that God is no longer revealing things. And so Joseph Smith just decided, you know what this is? This is persecution. I'm being persecuted. I soon found, however, that my telling of the story had excited a great deal of prejudice against me among the professors of religion and was the cause of a great persecution which continued to increase. So now he's being persecuted. And he decides he's just going to ignore the persecution and just go on living and apparently he went on living a normal life for another three years, believing that he had seen a vision of God. And he admitted during those years that he fell into many sins and, quote, foibles of the human nature, which he did not describe what those were. But apparently they really upset him, these foibles that he had. And on September, in September of 1823, he decided that he was going to go to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness. This is known as the second vision in 1823. And while praying, he said he had another vision from an angel. Here's what he said. 
While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday, when immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. This is the angel Moroni. He is still pictured today in Mormon temples. Anybody know where this temple is? Stone Oak. This is in San Antonio. And on the top, you'll see that little figure up there. That is the angel Moroni. This angel appears to Joseph while he's in the woods. And once again, this angel identifies Joseph by name. He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me and that his name was Moroni that God had a work for me to do and that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds and tongues, or that it should be both good and evil spoken of among all people. And so this angel says, look, God has an amazing work for you to be doing. Don't worry about it if people don't like you. Don't worry about it if people call you a heretic. Just keep going. That's just part of being a messenger of God. He continues. He said there was a book deposited written upon gold plates giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it as delivered by the Savior to the ancient inhabitants. So the Moroni tells him that you're going to receive golden plates. And all of these golden plates is the story or the history of the Israelites when they went into the promised land. Not next to the Mediterranean Sea. The promised land in his mind was America. And the Israelites somehow came to America. But Joseph didn't receive the plates for a couple of years. And the angel actually comes back to him. I think there's like seven or eight visions, which we're not going through all those today. Eventually, Joseph Smith found out that the plates were in New York, and he was able to pick them up on September 22nd, 1827. And he apparently received the plates directly from the angel Moroni. And when the angel gave him the plates, the angel gave him a specific charge, a specific task that he should do. That I should be responsible for them. That if I should let them go carelessly or through any ne neglect of mine, I should be cut off. But that if I would use all of my endeavors to preserve them, he, the messenger, should call for them. They should be protected. I think it's interesting that these are golden plates. Joseph Smith and his father were both um, gold hunters. And that was the big part of their life was searching for gold. And so now he gets these golden plates and the angel says, you're not allowed to sell them. Not allowed to get rid of them. Joseph received the plates and then he travels to Pennsylvania. And he begins copying the, the characters from the plates. Just transcribing them. Once he had them transcribed, he used what's called a seer stone. It's a mythical little stone that he put in a hat, according to him, and then he put his face in the hat, and he supposedly could read from the seer stone what the plate said. Now, you also need to understand, there's also a seer stone in gold, searching for gold. I forgot the name of it. But they would use these little stones that somehow mystically led them to gold. And here Joseph Smith says these little seer stone, the seer stone helps him to translate. And as he's reading the seer stone and his, his friend is writing everything down and that became the Book of Mormon. And he might say, wow, that seer stone must be an impressive little rock. And for years, decades, they hid the seer stone. And then recently they released a picture 
This is the magical little stone that he used to translate the golden plates. And of course, the angel Moroni came back and got the plates. So we can't see the plates. But he finished writing the Book of Mormon, and then he returned the stones back to the angel Moroni. And on April 6, 1830, Joseph Smith founded the Church of Mormon. He later died. He died after being arrested. Remember, this is in the early 1800s. Joseph Smith was trying to create a little compound, and he declared himself king roughly 50 years after the American Revolution where they fought to get rid of the king, and now he's declaring himself king, so he was arrested for insurrection, and then a mob broke into the jail and murdered him. And to this day, he's considered to be a martyr. Okay, so that's a very basic, brief introduction to how we got the Mormon church. But this class is all about cults. Why do we call Mormonism a cult? Well, Mormon theology is rather complicated. Because they believe in continuing revelation, their doctrine changes quite a bit, and they add new stuff a lot. So we're just going to focus on four areas, four things that make them a theological cult. One, they have a wrong view of Scripture, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of Jesus, and a wrong view of salvation. Wrong view of Scripture wrong view of God, wrong view of Jesus, and a wrong view of salvation. Let's start with a wrong view of Scripture. The Book of Mormon actually says that the Bible was corrupted and changed over the years. That specific parts of the Bible not only were corrupted, but specific parts of the Bible had been removed, and that we no longer have that revelation. Ergo, we need Joseph Smith's continuing revelation. Uh, 1 Nephi 13, 28 and 29. This is out of the Book of Mormon. Wherefore thou seest that after the book hath gone forth, that would be the Bible, through the hands of the great and abominable church, that would be everybody who's not Mormon, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is in the book of the Lamb of God. And after these plain and precious things were taken away, it goeth forth unto all the nations of the Gentiles, Gentiles here are non-Mormons. Yea, even across the many waters which thou hast seen with the Gentiles, which have gone forth out of, the, out of captivity, thou seest, because of the things which are taken away out of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceedingly great many do stumble, yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. I don't know why he chose to write it like he was writing the King James Bible, but the Bible's been corrupted. We need something more. It doesn't have everything that was supposed to be there. And this was directly taught by Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith and uh, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. From sundry revelations which have been received, it was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of men had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. So there's a whole bunch of stuff missing, and what's in the Bible you can't really trust. And so Joseph Smith actually went about trying to correct the Bible and fix the translations of the Bible. For example, Genesis 6.6, Joseph Smith said this, I believe the Bible as it read when it came from the pen of the original writers. Ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing corrupt priests have committed many errors. As it read, Genesis 6.6, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, which I do not believe. But it ought to read, it repented Noah that God made man. This I believe. So what's his standard for saying the translation is wrong? Did he go to the Hebrew and look at the Hebrew text and say, that's what the Hebrew says, that's what we need to go with? 
No, his standard was, I don't like this verse. And I can't believe it the way it's written, so it must be wrong. Or take uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Joseph Smith said that the passage in the third verse, which reads, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost, should be translated, No man can know, the, know that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. On what basis did he make that change? His own opinion. Or Romans 8.26, Pastor Michael just preached on this. The Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. It would be better thus. The Spirit maketh intercession for us with striving which cannot be expressed. Now, first of all, does that even make sense? He makes intercession by striving. The second problem is the word there is not striving. It actually means groaning. Where did he get this from? There are a lot more, but I think you get the point here. He was trying to correct the Bible. He not only thought the Bible was corrupted and missing a whole bunch, he also rejected the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. He embraced ongoing revelation and believed that God was still talking. And if God is still talking, then clearly the Bible is not sufficient. Joseph Smith. From what we can draw from the Scriptures relative to the teaching of heaven, we are induced to think that much instruction has been given to man since the beginning, which we do not possess now. This may not agree with the opinions of some of our friends who are bold to say that we have everything written in the Bible, which God ever spoke to man since the world began, and that if he had ever said anything more, we should certainly have received it. Is that the Christian position on the Bible? When we say sufficiency of Scripture, what we mean is that God has written down everything he has ever said? No. I'm sorry? End of John, John 20. Or if he would have just read through Revelation. And when seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. If he would have just read his Bible, he'd know. God did not write everything that he had ever said. Nowhere does it promise that it contains everything God has said. It contains everything that is necessary for life and for godliness. And you're going to see how this affects his theology. Because it affects his theology quite a bit. Because when he says the Bible's not sufficient and that God is still speaking, what does that open the door for him to do? Make up whatever he wants, right? God said, and as soon as you embrace God is still speaking, how are you going to tell him he's wrong? They have a wrong view of Scripture. Second, they have a wrong view of God. They have a wrong view of God. Starting with Joseph Smith, the LDS Church actually began to teach that God was a man just like us. And he came up with the idea by pointing to the terms father and son. Jesus has a father, and if the father has a son, that must mean the father must also be a son. If Jesus Christ was the son of God and John discovered that God, the father of Jesus Christ, had a father, you may suppose that he had a father also. Where was there ever a son without a father? And where was there ever a father without first being a son? Whenever did a tree or anything spring into existence without a progenitor? His whole idea is, I have a mom and dad. Ergo, God must have a mom and dad. 
in order for God to exist, he must have come into existence from another being. Is this divine revelation? This is the myopic thinking that requires God to be just like human beings. Not only did God have a father, and by the way, he's, he's mentioning God, the father, having a father. But God himself was a man. Joseph Smith. God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. This is the great secret, I say. If you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves in all the person, image, and very form as a man. God appears in the form of a man. He's not invisible. He's not like the scriptures define him as a spirit. He's just like you and I. Again, Joseph Smith wasn't reading his Bible. Colossians 1, verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the invisible God. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. God is not flesh and blood. He's not a human. He's not a man. Joseph Smith. That which is without body, parts, and passions is nothing. There is no other God in heaven but that God who has flesh and bones. God the Father took life unto himself precisely as Jesus did. See what he just did? He just denied the existence of the spiritual realm. If it doesn't have flesh and bones, it can't be true. It can't be real. That's a little bit of a problem for Christians, isn't it? If flesh and bone is the requirement for existing, John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If God has to have flesh and bone, then the God of the Bible can't exist. And you say, well, let's give Joseph Smith credit. He had a different definition of what a spirit is. And he just misunderstood what the scripture said about a spirit. Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That's Jesus. So when the Bible says God is spirit, it means he is immaterial. But Joseph Smith says, no, he's human. He's physical like everyone else. So what's the difference between you and God? If God is a man just like you, if he's human just like you, if he has a mother and father just like you, and he has flesh and bone just like you, what's the difference? The difference is that he progressed to being divine. He became deity. Joseph Smith sums it up this way. It is necessary we should understand the character and being of God and how he came to be so. For I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. God is not eternal. God is not uncreated. You've all just been duped. You just don't understand. He's going to take away the veil so that you can see that God is not eternal. He's a created being who at one time was human, and he progressed to deity. And that idea, that theology, is pervasive throughout Mormon teaching. And it's so pervasive that they even teach the same thing about Jesus. That he's a created being that 
progressed and became God. This brings us to a wrong view of Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith taught what is known as the pre-existence, that before creation, everybody was created as a spirit, and we are all the spirit children of the Father, including Jesus. Jesus was the oldest of the spirit children. He was the firstborn of the spirit children. His second brother, his, the very next one born, was uh, Lucifer. And so, Mormon theology says that Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers. The Mormon publication, Ensign, said on first hearing the doctrine that Lucifer and our Lord Jesus Christ are brothers may seem surprising to some, especially to those unacquainted with Latter-day Revelations, but both the Scriptures and the prophets affirm that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are indeed are indeed offspring of our Heavenly Father and therefore spirit brothers. Mormons today actually refer to Jesus as their elder brother because in their mind, he was a spirit child who was born before them in the pre-existence. Where did they get this teaching? They got it from Joseph Smith's revelations. Joseph Smith supposedly gave a quote of Jesus saying this, I was in the beginning with the Father and am the firstborn. And they would take firstborn here not as being the preeminent, but the firstborn as literally the first offspring of the Father. Bruce uh, McConkie, who is a Mormon theologian, said Christ is the firstborn, meaning that he was the first spirit child born to God the Father in the preexistence. We were all spirits in the preexistence. Before you had a body, before you came to the earth, you were a spirit in the preexistence. And in fact, they would say that everything that's living was a spirit child of the Father, including plants, animals, and insects. McConkie again. Every form of life had an existence in a spirit form before being born on this earth. Of all the billions and billions and billions of spirit children, Jesus was the firstborn, and he was the mightiest of the spirit children. And he became a god through his obedience. The difference between him and Lucifer is Lucifer rebelled. But Jesus behaved himself and was obedient and worked really hard, and he became a god by helping humanity. And this brings us to their view of Christ as being the only begotten. Now, when you hear Jesus as the only begotten, biblically what that means is that Jesus is of the same nature as the Father, that he shares the same substance, the same essence as the Father. But Mormon theology says only begotten refers to his literal sonship from the Father in Mary. That the Father had a relationship with Mary and Jesus was the offspring of that relationship. Charles Harrell the LDS understanding of this title is that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. That is, God was literally the biological father of Jesus. Since Mormonism teaches that we are all literally the spirit offspring of, the, of God in the preexistence, the title Son of God is more generally used in LDS discourse to note Christ's biological relationship to the Father in the flesh. Now, you might think they don't actually mean that. They don't mean that in the strict literal sense of what that says. They don't actually think the Father had a relationship with Mary. Douglas Davies explains the phrase, only begotten, should be understood 
in the most direct sense of God the Father engaging with Mary to engender his son. That's exactly what they teach. I don't think we need any more information on that, do we? Jesus became a man like every other man through the same natural process of a father and a mother. But that does present something of a problem and a little bit of a contradiction. First, if we just assume that they're telling the truth, that the father and Mary had this relationship, didn't we just say that all living beings are the spirit children of the father? So she's the father's daughter? Problem? Second, according to LDS teaching, if the father is human and Mary is human, then she did not have, she was not born, he, yes, he was not born of a virgin. Completely upends what the New Testament says. The LDS church says Jesus became a man through this scandalous relationship, and then as a man, he obeyed the law, and through his obedience, he became God. McConkie explains it this way. And he being the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, having overcome, that's the idea of obedience, received a fullness of the glory of the Father, possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit that bears record of the Father and the Son, and these three are one, or in other words, these three constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power. So Jesus overcomes, he obeys, and then he receives the fullness of the glory of the Father, a fullness he didn't have before. And he possesses the same mind as the Father. He didn't have the mind of the Father before, but now he does. And that these three are one, or in other words, these three constitute the great matchless and governing and supreme power. Yeah, they would say that Adam and Eve were born on the earth first, and then Jesus was a spirit, and he became man later. How did Mary have a relationship with God the Father while she was on earth? Uh, if you notice in here, possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit? That's very similar to New Thought. If you listen to the class on the Prosperity Gospel, I talked about New Thought and how they think the, the Spirit is the mind, and the mind is really powerful. That's kind of what that reads like to me. So Jesus becomes a God through his obedience. If he obeys really well, he becomes God. And now you too can become a God. If you just obey really well, and all those who keep his commandments shall grow up from grace to grace and become heirs of the heavenly kingdom and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, here it is, possessing the same mind, being transformed into the same image or likeness, even the express image of him who fills all in all, and become one in him, even as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. You can become one with God just like Jesus is one with God. Of the same mind, the same spirit, the same glory. Man is to become God. Okay, no, they didn't say that. You, Frank, you, you got that from a bad source. They didn't actually say that. Joseph Smith, what did Jesus say? The scriptures inform us that Jesus said, as the Father hath power in himself, even so hath the Son power to do what? Why? What did the Father, what the Father did? The answer is obvious. In a manner to lay down his body and take it up again, Jesus, what are you going to do? To lay down my life as the Father did and take it up again. That is to say, I'm going to do exactly what God did. And I'm going to be just like God. Jesus was going to mimic the Father and become God, and you are to mimic Jesus 
Joseph Smith again. Here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you. You are to be God. Remind you of anyone? Genesis 3. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Second, notice that there are gods that came before you. All these other people who have lived really good lives and have been really good Mormons have become gods. And if you just work really hard, you too can become a god. And they actually say you can have your own little world just like God the Father has now. You can have your own creation. How many gods? How did previous gods become gods? Namely, by doing small by going small degree to another, and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory, as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. You do it one degree at a time, and you just work really hard until you get there and you become God. But I want you to notice, this is all works righteousness. It's you become God through your good works. Yes, ma'am. If you talk to the average Mormon, some of them will admit it. Some of them won't. They'll try to convince you that they're believers, but the moment you bring up the fact that they believe in multiple gods, it's really hard to say you're a Christian because Christianity is historically monotheistic. So, but yes, they do know this. Uh, For a long time, Mormons, and I think it's still true today, Mormons were really well-trained and they could run circles around a Christian. And they come to your door and they just dance around you because they use the same terms, the same terminology, and then you don't know what they're saying. Yes. Yeah. It, it's a lot of twisting. Once you do all this good work and you, you perform so well, Joseph Smith, then they shall be gods because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then they shall be above all because all things are subject to them. Then they shall be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. Joseph Smith believed this so much that he used it to comfort people after a loved one died. This is how he comforted people at a funeral. How consoling to the mourners when they are called to part with a husband, wife, father, mother, child, or dear relative, to know that they shall rise again to dwell in everlasting burnings in immortal glory. Everlasting burnings is to say in divine status, in divine glory. They shall be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What is it? To inherit the same power, the same glory, and the same exaltation until you arrive at the station of a God and ascend the throne of eternal power, the same as those who have gone before that you would have the same power as God, that you would be omnipotent. No, you're not reigning as the glorified church that has been bought and redeemed. The goal for them is so that you can be like God and have his power and his glory. No, that's not what he's saying. When he talks about eternal, eternal burnings, he's talking about being in, in a glorified state. Kind of like you uh, in Ezekiel with the, the angels that are burning, the burning ones. That's what he's referring to. Now, not everyone's going to get to become a god. Joseph Smith in the resurrection, some are raised to to be angels. Others are raised to be gods, become gods. It just depends on how hard you work and how much good you do. 
Now, they do believe in many gods. They would be kind of like the Hindus, where they believe in many gods. There are millions of gods. But they say you should only worship one. Joseph Smith, there is much said about God and the Godhead. The scriptures say that there are gods many and lords many. But to us, there is but one living and true God, and the heaven of heavens could not contain him. Now, go back to what he's already said about God. He's just a man. Why do the heavens have a hard time containing him? And if there are many gods, why don't you worship all of them? Wouldn't they be worthy of worship if there were a lot of gods? Joseph Smith again. Paul says there are gods many and lords many. I want to set it forth in a plain and simple manner. But to us, there is but one God that is pertaining to us. And he is in all and through all. But if Joseph Smith says there are gods many and lords many, they cry away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Do I even need to mention what this is? If you disagree with Joseph Smith, you're like the people who called for the crucifixion of Jesus. Not only that, but you're limiting God. And you're presuming to know what goes on in the eternal realm. Hath he, the one who denies the existence of many gods, beheld the eternal world? And is he authorized to say that there is only one God? He makes himself a fool if he thinks or says so. And there is an end of his career, progress in knowledge. You're a fool if you say there is one God. And once again, my answer to Joseph Smith is you should have read your Bible a little bit more closely. Because Yahweh, the one God you say you worship, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Is Joseph Smith saying Yahweh has reached the end of his knowledge and progression? Or Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a formless place, but He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. Very clear, very plain. Grab one of those verses when the Mormon shows up at your door and just stand on it. There's no one other than Yahweh. Now, nowhere in this teaching that there are many gods is it more obvious than in Joseph Smith's view of the Trinity. If you want to prove that they're polytheists, all you have to do is ask him about the Trinity. Joseph Smith, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage, Jesus Christ a separate and distinct personage from God the Father, and that the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. Three separate gods. This teaching alone means he is not Christian. Modern Mormonism would claim that the three persons of the Godhead, by the way, Godhead is a way for them to avoid saying Trinity. These three persons are united not in essence, not in the nature, the divine nature, but they're united by purpose and will. Kind of like our church is united by purpose and will and a love for Christ. The three persons of the Godhead are united by purpose and will. Bruce McConkie explains it this way. Though each God in the Godhead is a personage separate and distinct from each of the others, yet they are one God. They all think, act, speak, and are alike in all things, and yet they are three separate and distinct entities. 
Each occupies space and is and can be in but one place at one time, but each has power and influence that is everywhere present. The oneness of the gods is the same unity that should exist among the saints. That is not Trinitarian. That's not Christian. That is a wrong view of who God is. It's a wrong view of Jesus. It's a wrong view of the Trinity. Not only that, but they have a wrong view of salvation. One of the first things you need to understand is that Mormons believe that grace is necessary. Mormons believe that faith is necessary. Their problem with Reformed teaching is the other word that comes along with those. Grace alone and faith alone. Bruce McConkie. Salvation, however, is not by grace alone. Rather, it is salvation by grace coupled with obedience to the laws and the ordinances of the gospel. Works and effort are central to salvation in the Mormon church. Second Nephi 25-23, this is out of the Book of Mormon. Be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Here's the idea. You are to work as hard as you can and give everything you have. And if for some reason it's not enough, grace will cover whatever you don't have. But grace only kicks in after you have done all that you can do. Moroni 10, this is also the Book of Mormon. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all of your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. Did you notice the progression there? You are to deny yourself of all ungodliness, love God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. Do that perfectly, and if you do that, then his grace is sufficient for you. So here's the idea. If you are just perfectly righteous, Jesus will save you. Just be perfect on your own, and then he'll save you. That's really encouraging. The Mormon Study Bible, which you could, I don't own this. You can actually look it up on, you can Google it and find it, says this about this passage out of Moroni 10. Notice the role of grace and works in these verses. We choose to come unto Christ, which enables us to be perfected in him, not alone, but in him. We choose to deny ourselves of all ungodliness and to love God. As a result, his grace is sufficient to make us perfect in Christ. We choose not to, den to deny the power of God. If we do this, then by his grace we are sanctified. Here's another way of saying it. God's grace allows you to save yourself. If you just work really hard, God will give you the grace. But grace comes after you work. Charles Harrell writes, The Book of Mormon is, is, according to the BYU religion professor Stephen Robinson, thoroughly Arminian in the way of salvation is proclaimed. Though all are fallen, all have freedom to choose between good and evil. But unless one yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, he remains an enemy to God. Thus, all persons are given provenient grace through the atonement of Christ. They, have, however, must respond with their own free will to the influence of the Spirit in order to receive the full blessings of the atonement. I think he just insulted the Arminians. <laughs> so even the Arminians don't go that far. 
Arminians do not teach that grace is sufficient after all you can do. They do have this weird concept of provenient grace. That's how they get around the doctrine of total depravity. And they say, well, God gives all sinners the ability to believe, even though they're totally depraved. It's not taught in Scripture, but that's what they teach. Here, this is almost a form of Pelagianism that says there's really no inherent sin. You just need to work really hard. Mormonism denies original sin. They say that Adam transgressed the law, but he didn't sin. I don't know how that works. Mormonism's view of salvation is a full denial of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Instead, Mormonism says that God gives grace so that you can earn your salvation. Spencer Kimball, he was the 12th president of the Mormon church, said one of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by man is that man is saved alone by the grace of God. That belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for salvation. We're not kidding when they say they deny salvation by grace alone. Mormonism would hold that faith is given by God, but it's not given by grace. Faith is given to you when you merit it through your good works. McConkie. Faith is a gift bestowed as a reward for personal righteousness. It is always given when righteousness is present. And the greater the measure of obedience to God's laws, the greater will be the endowment of faith. If I have to be righteous before I can have faith, that means I'm never going to have faith. You might ask, well, where's the atonement of Christ in this? Where's the work of Jesus? It's mentioned because they have to have cover to appear Christian. But it doesn't actually provide cleansing or forgiveness. The LDS Articles of Faith, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and the ordinances of the gospel. Jesus died so you can save yourself. Second Nephi 27-21, Verily, verily, I say, Unto you, this is my gospel, and ye know the things that ye must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that ye shall also do. For that which ye have seen me do, even that ye shall do. You have to do the works like Jesus. You have to live like Jesus. And it is also by works. You get, your works get you into heaven. Your works give you faith. It is also by works that you earn forgiveness. Joseph Smith, in his book, The Doctrines and the Covenants, said, Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. I have to be obedient to receive forgiveness. Bruce McConkie, complete forgiveness is reserved for those only who turn their whole hearts to the Lord and begin to keep all of his commandments. Not just those commandments disobeyed in the past, but those in all fields. If the Mormon wants forgiveness, they have to keep all of the commandments, and then they can be forgiven. That's kind of depressing. Bruce McConkie again, remission of sins comes in the first instance by repentance and baptism, but it is retained by good works. So if you want to keep your forgiveness, and if you want to stay forgiven, you can't backslide at all. Otherwise, you lose your forgiveness. And one of the primary works that you need to do in order to progress into becoming a god 
is to be baptized. You need to be baptized. Without baptism, you cannot be saved. But what happens if you die without baptism? Now, in Mormonism, you know, in Christian theology, when you die, you go of one, one of two places. You go to heaven or you go to hell. In Mormonism, it doesn't work that way. You can go to paradise or you can go to spirit prison. Paradise is the place where Mormons go so they can go do more good works and become a god. Spirit prison is where everybody else goes. And you say, well, what happens to you in spirit prison? In spirit prison, you have an endless stream of Mormon missionaries coming to convert you. And they come to evangelize you. Now, let's say you're in spirit prison and you have all these Mormon missionaries coming to evangelize you. And one day you decide, you know what? I really want to get out of prison so I can go work out and become a god. You can't become a god yet. You can't get out of spirit prison. You have not been baptized. But now you have another problem because now you're in spirit prison and there's no water in spirit prison. So you can't get baptized. Someone has to be baptized on your behalf in the world so you can get out of spirit prison. Bruce McConkie actually refers to these spirits in, in prison who have been converted as prisoners of hope. That is, though held captive in the spirit prison, these prisoners, prisoners of hope look forward with desire and expectation to be wrought out by the blood of Christ as part of the everlasting covenant, a redemption that would be complete only after baptism for the dead had been performed for them in this mortal sphere where there is water. The only way you can get a spirit prison is if someone on the earth is baptized for you in your place. They get that from one phrase in the New Testament where Paul mentions the baptismal for the dead. A phrase that nobody knows what he means by it. And they build an entire theology of salvation off that one little phrase that cannot be explained. And the rest of it is the revelations of Joseph Smith. Okay, with a little time we have remaining here, we're done with the, I, I regret to even call that theology. We're done with that. I want to talk a little bit about the scope of the LDS Church today because it's really kind of amazing. They're headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is their temple in Utah. We'll discuss more about the temple, but you notice how big that thing is? That takes a little bit of money to build those. The money comes from the LDS Church's considerable membership. The website actually gives details on what they claim to be their membership. They claim that right now there are 17 million Mormons in the world. Of that 17 million, roughly 7 million are in the U.S. And of the 7 million here in the U.S., roughly 300,000 of them are residing in Texas. And if you go to San Antonio, those are the Mormon churches in the San Antonio area. So they've got some influence. Okay, so how does the Mormon church grow so fast? They have a couple of ways. Um, first is just by birth rate. The state of Utah is 62% Mormon, and their birth rate is 16.5 births per thousand. 16.5 per thousand. The average U.S. birth rate is 12.2 per thousand. They're having babies very quickly. The second way they attract people is through their missionaries. In an article from a group called Deseret News, which is a news agency that is owned by the Mormon Church, 
in June 28th of 2023, the title was, The Number of Latter-day Saint Missionaries is Rising Rapidly. Here's what they said. The number of missionaries serving has increased steadily since Church President Russell M. Nelson asked young people to go on missions at the April General Conference in 2022, from 56,000 at the end of 2021 to 68,000 by June 14 of this year. Now, those numbers appear to be a little bit inflated. Desperate News added some numbers to them. Um, I think those numbers are a little bit closer. They added about 6,000 on the 2022 number. These are missionaries that they send out all over the world. Mormons are taught at a very young age that they have a duty and an obligation to serve the church on mission. Boys go out on mission at age 18. They leave for two years. Girls are encouraged to go on mission for 18 months when they turn 19. And they're assigned their location based on the church. The church tells them where they're going to go. And typically, the missionary goes on his mission or her mission at their own expense. If they need help with the expenses, they can go to their family. If their family can't help them, they can go to the local church. If that's still not sufficient, the LDS church has a missionary fund that supports 62,000 missionaries. And they use the fund to try to make the quality of life for every missionary equal. So if most missionaries have this standard of living, they want to make sure the rest of them have it. Now, how in the world are they able to fund 62,000 missionaries traveling around the world? They pay for it themselves. Well, the missionaries pay for it themselves, but the church provides a lot of funding for them too. They do it on the Old Testament principle of tithing. And it's a very legalistic religion, so they require all of their 7 million members to tithe 10% of their gross income. But tithing is not their only source of money. The LDS Church holds stakes. Actually, they own multiple umbrella companies from entertainment, news, real estate, farming, to shopping centers. They do a lot of business investments. In 2012, the LDS Church finished construction on a shopping center, a mall, in Salt Lake City. It's called the City Creek Center. It's a mall that's over 700,000 square feet. It costs somewhere around $1.5 billion to build. A church built it. And as soon as they built it, the journalists got a little curious, where did you guys get the money? And so they started investigating. And their first question was, um, why are you building a mall? Keith McMullen, a longtime Mormon leader and the head of Deseret Management Company, which we'll be discussing in a moment, gives this answer. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints attends to the total needs of its members. We look to not only the spiritual, but also the temporal, and we believe that a person who is impoverished temporally cannot blossom spiritually. You can't grow spiritually if you're, if you're broke and poor. Somebody should have told the Apostle Paul. The historian D. Michael Quinn is quoting the Bloomberg business saying this, in the Mormon worldview, it's as spiritual to give alms to the poor as it is to make a million dollars. And they know how to make a million dollars. They're really good at it. Bloomberg Business investigated the finance of the LDS Church in 2012 after they built the mall, and they discovered all these umbrella companies. For example, the Deseret Management Company, Inc., or DMC. Their website says they are officially owned by the LDS Church. Deseret Management Corporation is a global operating company managing for-profit entities affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
It's owned and operated by the church. What businesses does the D, uh, does DMC own and operate? Bloomberg Business. First among its for-profit enterprises is DMC, which reaps an estimated $1.2 billion in annual revenue from six subsidiaries, according to Hoover's company records. Those subsidiaries run a newspaper, 11 radio stations, TV station, a publishing and distribution company, a digital media company, a hospitality business, and an insurance business with assets worth $3.3 billion. They've got some money. The LDS Church also owns a real estate company. They call it Property Preserve, Inc. I would give you information on it, but I can't even find a website for it. Then there's another one called Ag Reserves. It's an agricultural business that owns more than 1 million acres in the U.S. And those acres include farms, preserves, ranches, and orchards. Outside the U.S., Ag Reserves is operating in Britain, Canada, Australia, Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil. That's just a couple of the umbrella companies that the LDS Church owns and operates. And of course, they have to tithe 10% too. All of those companies tithe 10% to the church. In 2012, when Bloomberg did their investigation, they gave an estimate of the church's income, and here's what they found. A recent investigation by Routers in collaboration with a sociology professor, I think it's Cragen, estimates that the LDS Church is likely worth $40 billion today and collects as much as $8 billion in tithing each year. Another estimate put that all the way up to $33 billion in tithing. Why the discrepancy between $8 billion and $33 billion? Because the LDS Church does not publish anything about its finances at all. And if you go and ask them about their finances, nope, we're not going to talk about it. It's also this income that allows them to build these really fancy temples. And this will be the last part of this. This is the Salt Lake City Temple. I personally think the outside of that building is kind of ugly, in my opinion. But the inside of these buildings is really impressive. This temple sits on 10 acres. It has 403,000 square feet of floor space. And then there's the San Antonio Temple. This sits on five and a half acres and has 16,800 square feet of floor space. 